This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with a king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. From Luminary, this is British Villains. My, my earliest memories, I'm... Earliest memories, somewhere in America, walking um, across a, a, like a, a, a sublit pavement, going to get myself a can of of Sprite no 7-Up which they didn't have in England at the time um, and I remember my dad holding my hand and me, and me looking up and he just seemed to be um, so so tall This is Nick Reynolds son of Bruce Reynolds whose mugshot was given the headline Train Robbery Mastermind by the press Yes yeah, so I was one year about, I was about one and a half um, when the train robbery happened uh, we went into hiding for about eight or nine months uh, then my dad left the country, and then we joined up with him. And then, uh, yeah, we, we've, me and my mother, we flew to Ireland and uh, basically to shake off the police. Uh, Mexico, I got a lot more memories of, but we went sort of we, we went across America, which took a few months, and then we lived in Mexico for about three years, three and a bit years. Then we went to Canada. Uh, then we for I think about a year. So by the time we came back to England, um, I must have been about seven and a half. And he, I think he enjoyed that. So I mean, it was, so obviously we're going through constantly having to go through one country to another, and uh, so he had different identities. And he would say to me, you know, okay, this is who I am now, and this is who you are now. And I remember one one occasion. I must have been about five or something, and we were going through um, through immigration control, and the, the guy was looking at my dad, looking at his passport photo, looking at my dad, looking at the passport photo, and for some reason, I'd why, I just happened to 
chirp out, Daddy, why did you shave off your moustache today? <laughs> my, my dad's there smiling at me, you know, just kick, you know, tapping me with his foot. I'm William Green, and this is British Villains. Those who'd been arrested would be tried together and not independently. It was the biggest robbery we've ever heard of. Unimaginable amounts of money. Somehow all the little bits of evidence against each of them added up to sounding like a lot of evidence against all of them. The crime of the century. The biggest heist in British history. In this episode, we're going to get to know the detectives that were assigned to track down the robbers and how Bruce Reynolds, Buster and the rest of the crew were either caught and tried or went on the run. We'll examine how the press spoon-fed the public information daily as the appetite for the story intensified. But first off, let's learn about the Flying Squad, London's elite police division who had taken over the investigation. These fellas really fucking fancy themselves and they had all the resources at their disposal. Flying Squad was set up in 1919 after the First World War when there was a crime epidemic, particularly in London. This is Robert Robinson, a former officer on the Flying Squad. I was a police officer for 33 years in the Met and uh, I spent three or four times on the Flying Squad at New Scotland Yard, Regional Crime Squad divisional work. The Flying Squad was called as much because the detectives were said to be quick to the scene of a crime. And when I was on the Flying Squad, there were ten squads. One was the Pickpocket Squad, which dealt with pickpockets at race courses, etc. And uh, they all worked under a detective inspector, about ten officers, three cars, three top drivers. And their job was to go out and get amongst the thieves, develop informants, and uh, also assist in investigating um, big robberies, etc. But they they didn't actually deal with reported crimes. That was the big difference. And, of course, in their own right, they become specialists. And uh, their main source of income, as far as work was concerned, was informants. So their main role was to develop informants. And they were mainly people that they'd arrested and uh, develop them to inform, or grasping, as it was called in England. To grasp, to inform on somebody, or as you Americans might say, to rat someone out. For villains in the 50s and 60s, my dad's era, that was about the worst thing you could do. But that's what the Flying Squad was known for, nurturing relationships with villains that they could exploit later, when required. There was a bit of an aura about it if you was in a uniform station and the flying squad had come in. And I suppose the aura was when they come in and brought, well, you say bodies, brought prisoners in, it was always for something interesting. You know, they didn't really... Most of what they dealt with was major crime, robberies. Um, so there was a bit of an aura about it. And uh, it was a, no, it was it was well thought of. And uh, the courts... Respect to the flying squad, the villains certainly did. You only had to knock on the door and say there's a flying squad and it opened. But uh, that's my opinion anyway. It it was a good, yeah, it was was a good job. 
Robinson was assigned to work the great train robbery under the grey fox himself, Tommy Butler. Now, everyone had heard of Tom Butler. My dad, Derek Glass. He was like a Jack Russell chase getting a rat. He would never let go. You never got close to Tommy Butler, but he was a great governor. The Flying Squad were a specialist squad, and their main job, I think it's right in saying, was to um, deal with armed robberies. Dick Cobbs is our resident criminologist. And they had the ability to move around London rather than be restricted to these 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 little geographical areas, these little districts that I, that I was talking about. So they could they could move around. And they were known as being um, quite daring. They were known as being also quite violent uh, amongst villains. They would say, if you got nicked by the flying squad, you were going to get a good paste in. Um, I'm sure that's wrong. I'm sure that didn't really happen. But anyway, that's what they tell me. And I, it, it's the, the flying squad were, were a specialist elite group were a specialist elite group uh, to deal with armed robbery and, and equivalent crimes. I mean, in those days, nearly most movies that you saw from America that, you, that were imported were Westerns. People were hooked on Westerns in those days. Nick Reynolds again, son of Bruce Reynolds. I mean, the copper that spent five years trying to track my dad down, uh, Tommy Butler of the Flying Squad, also known as the old Grey Fox, he lived with his mum... And he worked 24 hours a day, pretty much. The only time he would allow himself off was to go and watch cowboy and Indian films. And he saw himself as the sheriff with his posse and the villains with the Indians. And it's a time-honoured formula. Um, you know, and, and that, that, that very same formula is why people love cops and robbers. And um, so you had that thing that it was instantly Americana because you, there's no real history of um, outlaws in England apart from, say, Robin Hood, um, Dick Turpin maybe, whereas you had all these great romantic villains of the Wild West, Jesse James, you know, the Younger Brothers and the Hole in the Wall gang and the High Five gang and all of that kind of thing. And um, so f- for the English, <laughs> it was like a modern-day Western, you know, they'd stop right. to train. To recap... It's now autumn 1963. The Flying Squad is on the case, using every angle they can to get closer to the identity of the crew. The hideout at the farm has been rumbled. At this point for the villains, it's every man for himself. Summer running, summer hiding. No one is safe from the law. The crew from the robbery could never have anticipated the scrutiny that they would receive, especially from the public. The whole of England was tracking them, For some of the robbers, the men known to the police, there are a couple of options. Running was option number one. So I said to Buster, right, I'll get you out of here. Derek Glass, my dad, was old friends with Buster Edwards. So I've got another place in Shepparton, another house I rented. In the meantime, I bought a car and said, here's a car for a little 1100. Were they after Buster at this time? Not at the time, no, no. But pretty quickly... Suspected robbers started to appear on the front pages of every newspaper and on the nightly news broadcast. Finally, the public had put faces to the names. The rope was tightening. He just wanted to lay low. Yeah, yes. Yeah, and where was Bruce? I don't know. He would have gone anywhere. So everyone's just he did sort their of, own thing. Yeah. There had been a plan. Each man was responsible for his own escape, but the plan had also been to burn down the farm. And when that failed to happen, an entire house and shed full of evidence got left behind. 
best laid plans were unravelling rapidly. The Flying Squad had compiled a short list of active and most likely London villains, so they pretty much knew from the get-go who they were looking for. Now, my dad may not have known where Bruce Reynolds went off to. Like Nick said up front, he quickly made legs and would eventually reach Mexico under a false passport, the first villain of many to head to Acapulco. So you were one when your father com- yeah. committed the crime? Yeah, yeah. And Well, a year and a half, yeah. Right. And did you, as a kid, did you, had, do you have any recollection, any memory of what it was like then and... Yeah, I've, I've, uh, very clearly. Well, I say very clearly in as much as um, um, I've got a collection of memories that look like badly edited sort of snaps of old Super 8 movie, if you like. You know, they're not in any particular order. don't make any sense. I think my earliest memories probably would be Mexico when I was about three. So, so about for about a year, we hid um, various safe houses. Um, then my dad, uh, through um, a pal of his, Terry Hogan, um, got a private plane and uh, flew to Ostend, and then he made his way over to Mexico. Terry Hogan. Another villain. He'd had a bad feeling, so he pulled out of the train robbery. In the meantime, uh, myself and my mother, we then went to Ireland um, with uh, Ronnie Biggs's wife, Charmian, and their son. And then whilst we were over there, then we did a runner and ended up going over to meet my dad um, over in Mexico. So those are kind of my, my early, earliest memories, um, running around Mexico, driving around, because uh, my dad drove all across... Um, America. Um, he always had this romantic idea. He wanted to do um, the old trail that the old train train robbers of the Wild West did. You know, like the Hole in the Wall gang and that lot. So he did the thing that all outlaws did. You know, went across Texas and uh, cracked the border and went into Mexico. I mean, us Brits do love a good western. And he was doing actually. He was doing very well when he was in Mexico because he was living with the top two percent. Um, the apartment that we lived in was rented off the president of the Bank of Mexico. Um, he was running around dressed up like the great white African hunter, going jaguar hunting, you know. <laughs> in the in, in the and and he and he owned Dunhills, you know. He bought the fran- franchise That's to right. Dunhills yeah, while the he lighters, was out there. Right. I heard this previously from my dad. Bruce got a job. With, he got friendly with someone who got a job to become the concession for Dunhill lighters. Well, in those days, it was like it was the cigarettes, the lighters, all the little accessories, cologne, um, you know, items of clothing and stuff like that. And um, so, yeah, we, we, we had we had a good life, and I remember that kind of pretty vividly. And going to the bullfights with my dad and, and stuff like that. Um, and then, obviously, uh, Buster came out to see us. He didn't really fit in there, and um, he'd run out of money. And so he ended up through uh, Freddie Foreman cutting a deal, get his sentence reduced, came back, gave himself up. Somehow in the process, the old Bill had figured out where he'd been, thought, well, there's only one reason why he's got to be in Mexico. It must be where Bruce is. And my dad got um, got a couple of calls warning him that the old Bill were onto him. So we, we went and did a runner. And that was the end of Mexico, unfortunately. Right. So Bruce got away and so did Buster Edwards. No, th- the first thing I, I found out was, oh, oh yeah, in the sweet shop. A sweet shop used to sell newspapers and chocolates and sweets. 
And me and my sister went on our roller skates to our local sweet shop and uh, see all the newspapers, all like a fan, as they used to sell the newspapers. And then on the evening news, there was a whole row of pictures of train robbers and I spotted my dad, especially my name, you know. Anyway, I couldn't believe it. Marilyn Wispy is the oldest of the train robbers' children, but she was still only nine at the time. Anyway, we quickly paid for our sherbet dabs, went racing off on our skates, got home and I said to my mum, I've just seen Daddy's picture in a newspaper. I didn't, you never told me he was a train robber. You told me he joined the army because I kept saying, where's Dad, where's Dad? And uh, that was when he went on the run to Spain, you know, after he had his money hidden. And I was so upset that she never told me because she made out he joined the army. In the second half of 1963, most of the crew was hauled in for questioning. Roger Caudry was the first robber to be arrested when he tried to rent a garage along with his friend William Bow. Can you believe it? The garage was owned by a widow of a former policeman. She tipped off the police when Caudry tried to pay three months' rent in advance using ten shilling notes. Pretty fucking unusual for those days. His friend Bull was arrested and tried, even though he had nothing to do with the robbery. The wrongful arrest of Bull stayed with people for years afterwards. In a frenzy to make fast arrests, Bull was fitted up by the police. Maybe they thought it would smoke out other robbers, or maybe they just wanted to give the public a show. Either way, Marilyn describes what villains, including Frankie Fraser, think of the police in this case. Yeah, my dad and Frank always said that was terrible what they'd done to him. To be fitted up, and as as Frank has said to many journalists regarding crime, if you get caught, you get caught. It's a fair cop, that terminology. But... To be fitted up by the police, that's what's nasty when police do that. To fit someone up, that was diabolical, what they'd done to him. You know, and that's the same with everyone else around the world that gets fitted up from the police. Then, Marilyn's father, Tommy Wispy, turned himself in. So obviously when he got nicked and then got sentenced and then we went to see him... The army bit, it sort of confused me a little bit because the prison guards had their shiny helmets on, like flat helmets and chains, and it still, Penny didn't drop with me. It just, I just thought, oh, this is a strange, you know, thing. And then she had to tell me after our first visit, I said, this is a prison, Mum. When am I going to see Daddy? She said, well, you'll see him in a minute. Roy James was grassed up by a former girlfriend, typical, and caught after a daring attempt at a rooftop escape. Gordon Goody got nicked at a hotel while visiting his girlfriend in Leicester. Strangely, his disguise fooled someone into thinking he was Bruce Reynolds. Poor sod. By early 1964, uh, the majority of the gang had been tracked down and apprehended and um, a trial was set in Aylesbury. Nick Russell Prevere, co-author of The Great Train Robbery, Crime of the Century, The Definitive Account. The local county courthouse, which would be the natural place to, to, 
to take place for the for the trial to be set um was actually too small so they constructed in the council chamber at Aylesbury a um special courtroom and they sort of built a rather elaborate dock with sort of spikes on it and everything it was all quite dramatic and um uh, the idea was that those had been arrested um would be tried together and not independently by early january 1964 the police had their group of villains a jury was summoned and the country braced itself for the crime show of the century i say that deliberately because it was a show television crews photographers from the newspapers everyone was there to capture the villains they'd heard so much about one of the things i i think is is interesting to note is that um and i don't know whether this was part of the intention is that although a lot of evidence had been uncovered in terms of fingerprint evidence and things connecting the individual who was individuals who were going to stand trial to the farmhouse there was no piece of evidence that connected any of them to the crime scene and it would be possible to argue it seems to me that um yeah having been at the farmhouse doesn't necessarily mean to say that you were one of the people who took part in the raid. You could be an accessory in some way. You could even have been there quite innocently because you're friends with some criminals and they're hanging out. I don't know. Interestingly, this is why my dad would go to prison. But we'll get into that later. It's not what I would think if I was a juror, beyond reasonable doubt, that those people were the people who robbed the train. Um, But one of the things about the trial, and there was so, so much hanging on it from the establishment point of view, I... I sort of find it difficult to believe that it wasn't done in a deliberate way. By putting everybody in the dock together, and of course these people's faces had appeared in newspapers, people had been reading about the story like a sort of unfolding soap opera day by day since August the previous year. So in 1963 and in 1964, the Great Train Robbery continued to be the only show people were watching. Somehow all the little bits of evidence against each of them added up to sounding like a lot of evidence against all of them. And it was sort of kind of the, the, the sum being greater than the parts. Um, so whether that was a clever and calculated bit of, polit- of, of legal manoeuvring by the prosecution, uh, one has to suspect it was because it was a sort of kind of a show trial in a way. Everybody uh, was a lot hung on it, the reputation of the establishment. Everybody was expecting these people you know, and them to be made an example of because of the audaciousness of the crime and the size of the amount of money they'd stolen, etc. And remember, like we talked about, this is all taking place while the government was wrapped up in a sex scandal involving a Russian diplomat. Also, that November over in America, John F. Kennedy was shot to death. The powers that be had plenty of reasons to come down harshly and show that they were in control of the streets of London. It was the robbery. It was the biggest robbery we've ever heard of. Here's Dick Hobbs again. Unimaginable amounts of money. You know, at a time when you were doing okay if you were earning £20 a week, you were doing really, really well. These guys had stolen millions. You know, it's absolutely fantastic amounts of money. So they all sort of sat in the dock together and... um the evidence uh, was trotted out, and it was an extremely long and very detailed trial. It was the longest uh, trial in British criminal history at the time, and um, it just went on and on and on. 
uh, Malcolm Futrell, who was the head of Buckinghamshire CID, was coming out of the court one day and he heard the jurors saying, well, I can't make out what's happening, can you? So that gives you a kind of an idea of how confusing and overwhelming all this evidence and the nature of legal speak and the way the barristers all kind of kind of conduct themselves. I mean, in Nick's book, he says it took over 30 minutes just for the court clerk to read out all the various charges against the villains and hear their pleas for each charge. When you follow it and the arguments put forward, um, I think that uh, it was... It was kind of a constructed piece of, of legal theatre which designed to make sure that this evidence that they had, which didn't connect any of them to the crime scene, but sort of connected them to taking part in some way or being associated in some way with the robbery, kind of gathered this sort of kind of sense that, well, these guys are the guys and we've seen their faces in the front of the newspaper. You know, these guys, they they became... They became quite real to people, I think, uh, which is wrong. We didn't know them at all. We, all we knew was what we were being told about. But uh, it was a big crime and a big moment, a big moment that helped that helped to define the 1960s. So this group trial went on for months, ten accused men, and over 40 days of arguments and drama. Finally, the closing speeches for the defence were delivered on March 10th. The judge's name was Edmund Davies. His closing speech would take six days to read. According to Nick, this speech fills up nearly 5,000 pages of typed manuscript. But after all the talking, the jury reached a unanimous verdict. The guilty verdict was, was duly delivered. But um, without getting into all the, all the twists and turns of the trial, of which there are many, um, I think it is a sort of strange strangely questionable um, legal process. And it's not that the people in the dock weren't guilty. But of course, you know, it's, it's the onus is on the prosecution to give the jurors enough evidence that they can say that without doubt those people are guilty. And I don't honestly think that was the case for any one of those individuals. So they're found guilty, which most of them were. But it's when the sentences get handed down this is where things get really interesting. Um, I mean, normally speaking, for, for robbery, a sentence might be a few years, four or five years possibly. But because of the audaciousness of this crime and because everybody was up in arms about it, and, you know, felt it was an assault on the establishment in some way and all the rest of it, they got, you know, between 25 and 30 years each. Most of them got 30 years on that particular occasion. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. 
Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet that's right up to $1,500 again sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in Ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park that's 1-800-GAMBLER Thirty bloody years. That's fucking unreal. That's absolutely staggering. I've had my differences of opinion with Russell Prevere on this show, but here we're in full agreement. Thirty years is total fucking madness. In some ways, it was it was just too harsh, and that created its own backlash in terms of public opinion and everything. A lot of people will tell you, and we will hear from some of them, that handing out such harsh sentences was a major error of judgment. And it would have a ripple effect on British society as a whole. It wasn't that they hadn't done the raid, it wasn't that the raid was pretty unpleasant and that they weren't guilty, but, you know, the the legal process one has to look at on its own merits, and I don't think um, they they were properly served by... um, by the process that they were put through, in a way. So it's, it, is a, it is an interesting thing. The sentence, or the tariff, is often referred to, you know, there's a there's a margin between which of those things, what that should be and how severe it should be. Once you step outside that margin, which is what um, the judge, Edmund Davis, decided to do, or had, it had been agreed at a judicial level that this was going to be made, they were going to be made exceptional... Um, you know, it kind of, A, definitely provoked public response, a very critical one. And then in the minds of the robbers, um, ultimately, perhaps they felt um, they had nothing to lose then. This is really important. In Britain, a land without capital punishment, 30 years was just about the longest sentence you could get for anything including mass murder. They got more than the IRA. Even the IRA, when we, they spoke to me dad in the nick, they said, it's a liberty, because yours is criminal, ours is political. So that's when Lord Mountbatten brought uh, the uh, parole system. Marilyn would have to wait until she was 21 years old to see her dad, Tommy Wispy, freed from prison. So the feeling amongst villains shifted. If a bunch of train robbers, without using guns, without killing anyone, could get 30 years, then why not use some fucking guns? Why not tool up? Why not use violence? Different crime, same time. The idea at that time, and it's important to remember, there wasn't a parole system in in British justice at that time. That came in in 1968, the parole board. And so you could get time off for good behaviour, but latterly in 68, 
the pro and the pro board in it was that you could serve a third of your sentence and providing you hadn't you know misbehaved you would effectively be allowed out which is in fact what happened but at the time those sentences were handed down 30 years meant a good long stretch and certainly more than 10 uh, i.e a third so um then so when these guys are incarcerated you know they're facing a very long stretch and so that possibly um then brought about uh, another kind of part of the extraordinary story so that's it then all guilty most of the crew are going to prison for a very very long time banged up doing bird or maybe not then you've got the dramas of the prison escapes that's right and more than one so this story is far from over I mean who doesn't love a good fucking prison escape and it just seems to go on and on um, dominating the next uh, you know, several decades as being the crime that everybody talks about that's next time on British Villains. He was on the run for the next 30 years. What have we got to do? We've got to get you to Germany. Stories about plastic surgery. We didn't know about plastic surgery then. He said, it's killing me, the pain. Uh, about 20 coppers came pushing in and bursting and running up the doors. Who the hell is my dad? What has he done? From Luminary, British Villains is a production of The Cut, Ninth Planet Audio and Western Sound. Executive producers are William Green, Aaron Ginsberg, Jimmy Miller, Hans Sarney and Ben Adair. The show was written by Rosecrans Baldwin and Vanessa Sadler. Nick Reynolds and Edward Rose composed the theme. Music by Michael Cruz. Producers include Christina Moore, Annette Runhell and Stephanie Aguilar. The show was sound designed and engineered by Dan Leone. Up next, episode nine, Run. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. 
Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club.